we're studying Ephesians, the riches of grace, and we're on teaching number 28, part two of the shield of faith. And Ephesians 6, 10, 11, and then verse 16 says this, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And then verse 16, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So in putting on the full armor of God, tonight we're looking at the shield of faith. Last week was the shield of faith part one. Tonight is the shield of faith part two. I started looking up the word faith, and I noticed that the word faith is used about 210 times after the cross of Jesus, and the overwhelming majority are used by Paul to describe our faith in Jesus as it relates to believing the truths about the gospel of grace, which is everything God has done for us in Jesus to freely provide righteousness to us as a gift, therefore leaving us nothing to do but to receive by faith the righteousness that he's provided. So if you just want to do a study sometimes, just start reading through the book of Romans and circle or count or write down every time the word faith is used, the same with Galatians. Uh, it's just an enormous amount of times that Paul uses the word faith. Now, in Acts 26, 15 through 18, it's a verse we look at a lot, you guys. I go back to it a lot uh, because it's really the starting place of the gospel of grace. And in Acts 26, 15 through 18, Luke records the conversation between Jesus and Paul when Jesus first reveals to Paul the gospel of grace, it's the first time Paul would have heard it. So he reveals to Paul the gospel of grace and the faith that receives this grace and the faith that once this grace is received, then breaks the power of Satan in our lives. So let's look at the words of Jesus about grace to Paul, about the gospel of grace, and we want to pay specific attention to the word faith in the words of Jesus to Paul. This is the ascended Jesus. He's appeared to Paul and he's given Paul the message of the gospel of grace and sending him out on the mission to take this message into the cities all over the Roman empire. So starting in verse 16, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, the Lord replied. And going into verse 16, Jesus says, now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you, Paul, to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. That's the ongoing revelation of the gospel of grace that the ascended Jesus would spend time with Paul to educate him further about the gospel. And so he goes on in verse 17 to say, I will rescue you, Paul, from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them, verse 18, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So there's that word faith. Now, Paul had been in a system of works under the law. So this was really something new to Paul. He's teaching Paul that the way you're going to relate to God the Father now is not by works, but by faith. And when you place your faith in me, Jesus said, then the power of Satan is going to be broken in your life. And we see that this 
the power of Satan being broken once somebody places their faith in Jesus happens because they received the forgiveness of sins, which we looked at last week in part one. And by faith in Jesus, they have a place among those who are sanctified. And so tonight, that's what we're going to look at is this word sanctified. So notice the connection between faith in Jesus that receives forgiveness and sanctification and that results in freedom from the power of Satan and also results in experiencing the power of God. So what we see in the words of Jesus to Paul is not only when someone places their faith in Jesus is the power of Satan removed, but they experience the power of God. And so the question then is, what is the power of God that frees us from the power of Satan when somebody places their faith in Jesus? Well, the power of God is the gospel of grace. Paul writes about this power in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for those who believe. So the power of God in the life of a believer is the gospel. And the gospel is the message of grace. The gospel is everything God has done for us in Christ. So when we go back up and we look at Acts 26, 15 through 18, Jesus is communicating to Paul the gospel of grace, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified in me. That's the gospel. Now in Romans 1, 16 through 17, when Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for those who believe. From that point on in verse 18, Paul explains what the gospel is. He explains that the Gentiles are sinners in chapter one of Romans, chapter two, the, the Jews are sinners. Chapter three, everybody's a sinner. The law convicts everybody of sin. And then about midway through chapter three, he presents this gospel of grace, the good news of everything God has done for us in Christ. And people place their faith in Jesus. They trust in Jesus. They believe and they receive righteousness or right standing before God, which righteousness includes complete forgiveness and righteousness includes being sanctified or holy or pure before God, because a person can't be righteous before God if they're not completely forgiven. A person can't be righteous before God if they're not completely holy. So the blood of Christ clears our sin record. That's forgiveness. The blood of Christ cleanses our hearts. That's sanctified so that now we're righteous before God through faith in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Now, last week, when we started on the shield of faith in part one, we saw that it is the gospel of grace that defeated Satan. It's the gospel of grace that Satan doesn't want people to hear about. He doesn't want people to understand because that's the power of God that, that has rendered him powerless. We also saw last week that it's the gospel of grace that we use to defend ourselves against Satan's flaming arrows. Faith has an object. The object of our faith is Jesus, and not only the person of Jesus, but the work of Jesus on the cross for our sins, the presence of Jesus living within us. And so it's the gospel of grace that defeated Satan. It's the gospel of grace that we use to defend ourselves against Satan's flaming arrows or his lies that come against us. 
So believing the truths about the gospel of grace is how we take up our shield of faith against Satan's lies, his flaming arrows. So faith is believing the truths about grace, about all that God has done for us in Jesus. So believing the truths of grace is how we break the power of Satan in our lives. And it's how we experience the power of God in our lives by believing the truths of all that God has done for us in Christ. So going back to Ephesians 1.16, Paul says, take up the shield of faith by which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, the first flaming arrow or the first satanic lie that we looked at last week was Satan will come and say, you're not forgiven. Well, the shield of faith that we looked at last week was through faith in Jesus, I am forgiven. Through faith in Jesus, I am forgiven. We've placed our faith in Jesus. We receive forgiveness. Therefore, we are forgiven. So attached to the arrow that says you're not forgiven, this lie that says you're not forgiven is another lie that says God's counting your sins against you. But the shield of faith responds to that lie by saying all of my sins were counted against Jesus. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 19. So that was last week. And so this week, we're going to look at another flaming arrow of Satan. And this flaming arrow, we'll call it flaming arrow number two, is that you're dirty before God and you're distant from God because of sin. The shield of faith is this. You are clean before God and you're close to God because of the blood of Jesus. If it's the gospel of grace that defeated Satan, then Satan's going to try to lie to us about the gospel of grace because he knows that our power to extinguish his flaming arrows that come against us, it's the gospel of grace, and he knows the gospel of grace defeated him, then he's going to lie to us about the gospel of grace. He's going to try to suppress the truths of the gospel of grace. He doesn't want us to rely on what God has done for us in Christ to defeat his lies. And so if he can keep us from understanding this gospel in its fullness, then these flaming arrows can penetrate our minds and get us to think things that aren't true, can penetrate our hearts and get us to feel things that aren't true. And so we want to keep the, the satanic lies from landing in our minds, from landing in our hearts. And the way we do that is putting up the truth the shield of faith, which is the truth about the gospel. So Satan doesn't want us to understand that we're clean before God and we're close to God because of the blood of Jesus. He wants us to think we're dirty before God and we're distant from God because of sin. All right, let's take one more look as we move into this idea of being clean before God and close to God because of the blood of Christ. Let's look one more time in Acts 26, 17 through 18, the initial giving of the gospel to Paul. Starting in verse 17, Jesus says, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now we're taught over and over again, and I think it's by well-meaning Bible teachers, by well-meaning pastors, 
I just don't know if they've ever truly been taught that sanctification is not a process. You know, we've been taught over and over again that sanctification is a process, that you and I become more and more holy as we grow. Well, what we see in this verse is the very opposite of that. We see that sanctification isn't a process. Sanctification is this one-time act of God where he declares a person to be clean, to be holy, to be pure before him, and as a result of being clean, pure, and holy before him, we're close to him. And, and people will tell us, well, sin, sin disrupts closeness between God and the believer. Well, I can't find that anywhere in scripture after the cross of Jesus. But what we do see is that all of our sins were counted against Jesus and, and God's not counting our sins against us and he remembers our sin no more. And so I used to think that sin caused some type of barrier between God and me. It disrupted fellowship between God and me. And the reason I thought that was because that's what I had been taught. But I didn't know at that time as such a young believer that just because somebody was teaching that to me, that it just might not be true. I just assumed that was a biblical truth. But as I began to, to study scripture, I began to see that we're sanctified by faith in Jesus. So it's something that Jesus did that made us holy. And what did he do? He shed his blood on the cross for our sins. And by his blood, you and I are made clean before God, purified, sanctified, and we're close to God. So being sanctified is this one-time act of God where he declares a person to be clean before him and as a result, close to him. So the question is this, how does a person become clean before God? And how does a person experience closeness with God? Or how is a person sanctified? Well, we just saw in Acts 26, 18, that we're sanctified by faith in Jesus. I remember in the Jewish scriptures, David had a relationship with Bathsheba. And in order for that relationship to happen, the first thing he would have to do is break commandment number 10 in the 10 commandments, which is thou shalt not covet. He began coveting another man's wife. And out of that coveting desire and that passion, he began to pursue another man's wife. And he should have been at battle and at war with the army of Israel, but he stayed behind because he had a plan. When Uriah goes to war, then that's going to create an opportunity for him to have a relationship with Bathsheba. So he calls for Bathsheba, and they end up having a relationship, committing adultery. And then David lies about the entire thing. So he coveted another man's wife. He stole another man's wife. He lied about it. And so we see him breaking the Ten Commandments. And, and what we see about David, when we read Acts 13, Paul describes David as a man after God's own heart. So here's a man who had a, a desire for God. He had an intimate, close relationship with God, as much as you could under the law of Moses. But you also see a man struggling with sin. 
And his struggle led him to commit adultery, led him to lie, led him to steal another man's wife. He even had Uriah murdered. So he's broken for the commandments. Here's a man after God's own heart who coveted another man's wife. He lied about it. He stole her from Uriah and he had Uriah murdered. So when the high of this relationship began to wear off, the low of what he had done began to arise from within him. Guilt began to arise. Shame began to arise. Self-condemnation began to arise. Self-hatred probably came. He began to feel dirty before God and he began to feel distant before God. What we see in Psalm 51 is an Old Testament under the law of Moses way of getting back into good standing with God, getting back into a right standing with God. David was distant from God because under the old covenant, sin did create a barrier because the blood of bulls and animals and goats and lambs couldn't take away the sin of a human being. They could cover sin. That's why they were constantly having to have an animal sacrificed and constantly having to repent and seek his forgiveness. You see in the prayers of Nehemiah and you see in the prayers of Daniel and you see in the prayer of David, this God, I'm so sorry for my sins. And you see this begging for God to forgive under the law of Moses, under the old covenant. So David yearned to be close to God. He, he felt distant from God and he's crying out for cleansing in Psalm 51. Now remember, David lived under the old covenant of law. That's the Old Testament. Again, I'm not talking about books there. I'm, I'm talking about the way God related to people prior to the New Testament or the blood of Jesus coming in, changing the way we relate to God, which one's by law, the old covenant, another's by grace, the new covenant. So David lived under the old covenant of law where cleansing of sin was temporal and continual. So they were always seeking cleansing of sin. It was temporal and it was continual. And it was based upon the works of the law of Moses. They were consistently asking God for forgiveness and asking God for cleansing. Now, the good news for us, we live under a different covenant than David lived under. So we don't want to go to Psalm 51 to see how to get clean before God and how to get close to God because David didn't live under the new covenant because the new covenant or the new Testament didn't go into effect until Jesus died on the cross. David didn't live on this side of the cross. He couldn't experience what you and I have the joy of experiencing in this new Testament relationship with God in this covenant of grace relationship with God. So we live under the new covenant of grace where cleansing of sin is eternal and complete because it's based upon the work of Jesus. And we accept this work of Jesus, this complete cleansing of sin and this complete forgiveness of sin. We, we accept this by faith in Jesus. Remember, that's what Jesus told Paul to go communicate through faith in me. You receive forgiveness and you're sanctified. All right, so that's not how David, that wasn't his relationship with God. He was under the law of Moses. We're under the cross of Jesus. It's a major difference in how we relate to God. So let's take a look at this eternal cleansing of sin, this idea of being sanctified or this truth of being sanctified 
before God. And let's look in Hebrews because it's really the major place where this idea of being sanctified or this truth of being sanctified and made holy and pure and clean is taught on the most. Now, remember, Satan's lie is that we're dirty before God, we're guilty before God as believers when we sin, and he wants us to live in the shame and the guilt of our sins as believers. And his lie is that because you're dirty before God, you're distant from God. And his ultimate goal is to drive this wedge between God and us, which he can't do in reality, but if he can get us to do in our minds and in our thoughts, that's his goal. But the shield of faith, when Satan sends this lie, the shield of faith is this, I am sanctified, I am clean, I am holy, I am pure before God because of the blood of Christ, and I am close to God. The, the shield of faith would say, I know Satan, you're lying to me. You're telling me that I'm dirty before God. You're telling me that I'm distant from God because of sin. But the truth, the shield of faith, the truth is my sins were nailed to the cross. And through faith in Jesus, I've experienced forgiveness and I've been sanctified. I've been made holy. That's, that's the shield of faith that, dis, that extinguishes the lie of Satan when this flaming arrow comes at us. Now, the book of Hebrews expounds on this sanctified standing that we have before God. So let's, take, let, let's look into Hebrews at this sanctified standing that's once for all one act of Jesus that has sanctified us, that has made us holy, pure, and clean before God. Let's look in Hebrews at this. All right, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says this, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, or when you see Jesus, you see God. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So what we see in Hebrews chapter 1 is that Jesus is fully God. Hebrews chapter 2, we see that Jesus is fully human. And the reason the, the, the writer of Hebrews starts the book off that way, that Jesus is fully God, Hebrews 1, and Jesus is fully human, Hebrews 2, is because Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And so in order to be a mediator of a new covenant, a mediator fully represents two sides. So in, in order for Jesus to be the mediator of a new covenant, he had to fully represent God as God. That's the reason Hebrews chapter 1 is written. He had to fully represent mankind, humankind, as a human. So in Hebrews 1, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is greater than the angels. But in Hebrews 2, he says Jesus is lower than the angels. He's greater than the angels because he's God, but he, God became man and he became lower than the angels. Well, what was the purpose so that Jesus could be the mediator of a new covenant. So Jesus could bring God and man together in a relationship so that we could be clean before God and so that we could be close to God. That's the purpose of the new covenant, to cleanse us from sin so that we can be close to God. And Satan will come and say to believers, you're not clean and you're not close. You need to, you've got unconfessed sin in your life. Your sin has disrupted your fellowship with God. 
Your sin has created a barrier between you and God. And that is just a satanic lie. Because where were our sins nailed to? They were nailed to the cross. How many of our sins were nailed to the cross? All of them. How many of our sins did the blood of Jesus cleanse? Which is what the rest of Hebrews 1.3 says. It says, after Jesus had provided... After Jesus had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, the rest of the book of Hebrews, starting with verse 4, explains the verse that we just read. It explains that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. It explains that in Hebrews chapter 1. And it explains that he provided purification for our sins, starting in Hebrews chapter 2. All right. So the purpose of Jesus, as we see here, is to provide purification for sins. How many of our sins would Jesus provide purification for? All sins have been purified by the blood of Jesus. That's 1 John chapter 1 verse 7 as well. So he's provided purification for sins. That's a big difference between what David was experiencing in Psalm 51. David was requesting that his sins be purified. Remember, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be whiter than snow. He's, he's asking for cleansing from his sin with Beth, Bathsheba. But notice here the difference between Psalm 51, which is before the cross under the law of Moses, the Old Testament, and after the cross under the New Testament, being the blood of Christ. Purification for sins is provided for us through Jesus. So it's not something we ask for. It's not something we beg for. It's not even something we seek. Because he's provided purifications. He's provided purification for sins. So what we see in Hebrews is the writer of Hebrews is asking the Jewish reader at this point, at this time in history, the Jewish reader was seeking to be purified from sins the way David was seeking to be purified from sins in, Psalms, in Psalm 51. All right. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, you don't seek purification for sins through the law of Moses. We are purified from all sins or cleansed from all sins or sanctified through the blood of Jesus. And it's been provided for us. So we don't earn it. It's not, it's not a progressive sanctification. It's a provided for sanctification. Progressive sanctification has the idea of, of me earning or accomplishing a holy standing before God the more I grow in my relationship. That, that's just not the gospel. Jesus provided purification for sins. And notice what he did. After Jesus provided purification for sins, and where did he provide purification at? At the cross. Okay. And what did he do after he provided purifications, purification for sins? He sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He sat down. You can read about that in Hebrews 7. You can read about that in Hebrews 10. This idea of Jesus sitting down means that, that Jesus has fully and forever provided purification for sins, and he's not, in the, he's not in the purification for sins business anymore. God is not purifying people for sins anymore. If God needed to continually cleanse people from sins, then Jesus would have to stand back up, take on a human body, come back to earth and die on the cross again, because that's where purification happened. That's where cleansing happened. That's where our holy standing happened. And so the writer of Hebrews in the end of Hebrews chapter three and the beginning of Hebrews chapter four is encouraging the reader who's under the law of Moses to stop working under the law to be clean before God and start resting in the blood of Christ because they're clean before God. All right. So Jesus came to provide purification for sins. He did it at the cross. He did it through his blood. And when he, he, he completed the purification for sins, he sat down. Let's read about this some in Hebrews 9, 12 through 14. It says, Jesus did not enter, that's the presence of God, the most holy place. So says Jesus did not enter the most holy place by the means of blood by the means of the blood of goats and calves but he he entered the most holy place once for all by his blood thus obtaining eternal redemption all right remember in exodus the instructions were given to Moses to build the tabernacle and included in the tabernacle was the holy place, which had the furniture in it, and the most holy place. And the curtain divided the holy place from the most holy place. And the most holy place represented the presence of God. And it was an earthly sanctuary or tabernacle, ultimately a temple that was built. And so once a year, the high priest would go into the most holy place with the blood of the animal. And in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the Ten Commandments. All right. And the Book of the Covenant was beside the Ark of the Covenant. And the Book of the Covenant would have been Exodus, uh, probably 19 through Deuteronomy, all the law of Moses, the book of the covenant, and it was a witness against the guilt of the people. All right. We see here that Jesus didn't go into a man-made tabernacle with the blood of goats and calves and bulls and, and lambs. Jesus went into the real tabernacle. Jesus went into the real sanctuary. Jesus went into the real most holy place. And what is the real most holy place? It's heaven. And it describes that in Hebrews. Jesus went into heaven. And Jesus went into heaven itself with his own blood. Because the blood of goats and the blood of calves and the blood of bulls and the blood of lambs cannot, cannot obtain eternal redemption 
our eternal forgiveness and eternal sanctification or eternal cleansing of sin. Only the blood of another human could do that. And that was Jesus because he's the only one who hadn't sinned. So Jesus goes into the father, to the father in heaven with his own blood, obtaining eternal redemption. Notice under the law of Moses that cleansing was continual and was temporal. But under the cross of Jesus, the cleansing from sin is eternal. All right. Who did Jesus obtain eternal redemption for? Well, you and I both know, not for himself, because he had never sinned. For us, for you, for me. He obtained it for us. That's why he can provide it to us. So going back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus provided purification from sins. That's eternal redemption. It's the same thing. Eternal redemption and purification from sins is exactly the same thing. So the reason he's providing purification for us is because he's obtained it for us. So who's done all the work right now? Jesus. He's obtained it for us, and he's providing it to us. And how did he do it? By his own blood. So it's the blood of Jesus that provides eternal purification or eternal redemption of sins. Verse 13 of Hebrews 9. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they were outwardly clean. He's talking about the law of Moses. He's talking about the book of Leviticus. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself unblemished to God? For who? Who did Jesus offer himself for? for you and for me, to do what? To obtain eternal redemption. And what is that? Purification from sins. So Jesus offered himself for us. That's why it's called grace. We can go back to Hebrews chapter two, verse nine, and see that it's, it's the word there is grace. So the blood of Christ, how much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences, from acts, the sinful acts that lead to death, so that we may serve or we may be in relationship with the living God. Notice the exclamation point that the writer of Hebrews puts on that verse. The writer of Hebrews is excited about the new covenant. Now, if we could get pastors, right, Joe? I know you are, and I know some of us are. Man, if we could get pastors excited about the new covenant, like the writer of Hebrews was excited about the new covenant and helping people understand that they've been eternally forgiven and they've been eternally cleansed and they're close to God so that we may serve the living God. That's that, the idea there is so that we may be close to God in relationship, so that we may know God in a loving relationship. So because the blood of Christ has eternally cleansed us from sin, we now are in a close relationship with God. We're not dirty before God, and we're not distant from God. We're in a close, loving relationship with God because of the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. Now look at Hebrews 10, 1 through 3. 
says the law is talking about Exodus 19 through the book of Deuteronomy. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Now, what are the good things that the law is a shadow of? Well, the good things is grace. It's what Jesus was going to do for us on the cross. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Every time an animal was sacrificed, it was pointing to Jesus. Everything in the law points to Jesus, and it finds its fulfillment in the, in, in the eternal work of Christ. So all the temporal things of the law finds their fulfillment in the eternal work of Christ. So the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeatedly in for this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect. What does that mean? Make clean, make holy, make pure, sinless, spotless before God. That all the sacrifices under the law of Moses repeated year after year after year and day after day after day could never cleanse a person. It can never remove their guilt. It can never remove their shame. It can never make them holy and righteous and forgiven and clean before God. Because if it could, then they would only need to do it one time. And that's the point that the writer makes here. For this reason, all these sacrifices, year after year after year, could never make perfect those who draw near to worship, those who want to be close to God. Otherwise, if these sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year after year. Otherwise, would these sacrifices not have stopped being offered? If, 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 if continual cleansing under the law was good enough and it worked and somebody could be not guilty, then they would have, it wouldn't be necessary to keep making these same offerings over and over again. God, I got to get clean. I got to get clean before you. I've got to get forgiven. It was ongoing. It was every day. It was every month. It was every year. God, forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive me. All right. But the blood of the bulls and goats could not cleanse from sin, nor could they bring people close to God. For if they could have, the worshipers, in verse 2 of Hebrews 10, the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would have no longer felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices were an annual reminder of sins. Now, most believers today, probably no believers today, are living according to really the law of Moses. They're not sacrificing animals, and they're not taking an animal to the priest, and they're not having a priest sacrifice an animal for specific sins. But the mindset of believers is exactly like it was then. The mindset of, of those in Israel back during this time was this ongoing need for forgiveness of sins, this on, ongoing need for cleansing from sins so that they could be close to God. They could never rest. They could never enjoy closeness to God because there was another sin that needed to be sacrificed for. There was another sin that had disrupted their closeness to God. There was another sin that had made them dirty before God and created distance between them and God. And so they needed to seek a sacrifice in order to be clean before God and close to God. That mentality exists today, and it's taught to so many believers. 
Keep asking for forgiveness. Keep seeking forgiveness. You're not clean before God. You're not close to God. God's keeping a count of your sins. You, you've got to con continually seek forgiveness. And they'll divide this forgiveness up into positional forgiveness. Well, yeah, positionally you are forgiven, but relationally you're not forgiven. As if Jesus died for two different types of sins. It leads us to believe, well, Jesus died for positional sins, but not relational sins. Nowhere in the Bible is sins categorized. There is only sins. And Jesus died for all sins, for all people, for all time. And faith receives this forgiveness and this cleansing of sins. But how many believers just repeatedly go back to God constantly based upon Psalm 51? seeking the forgiveness of God year after year after year. And they've been in church for many years and they've never heard the gospel. They've never heard the new covenant. Their pastor's not excited about the new covenant and he probably doesn't even understand the new covenant. And so they're seeking cleansing over and over and over again, day after day after day, year after year after year, trying to stay clean before God and close to God. So it's no different than the law of Moses. It's, it's the same mentality. But Jesus offered himself one time for all sin, for all people, and gave his blood for us so that we could be eternally clean before God and eternally close to God through the blood of Jesus. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, 9 through 10. It says, Jesus sets aside the first, or let's go back. It's Hebrews 10, 9 through 10, God sets aside the first covenant, talking about the law of Moses, the first covenant. Remember in, in, in Matthew 26 and in Luke 22, Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant. So when Jesus died on the cross for the, to establish the New Testament or the new covenant, the first covenant, which David lived under in Psalm 51, was set aside. So that first covenant of law that we find contained in Exodus, uh, starting in Exodus 19 through Deuteronomy, that law has been set aside. It's, it's no longer active. What's active now is the new covenant of grace, the new testament of grace, what Jesus did for us on the cross. So God set aside the first covenant to establish the second so if God has set aside this covenant, I certainly don't need to be preaching a covenant that God has set aside. All right. God set aside the first covenant to establish the second covenant. Paul writes about this, both for the first and second covenant in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And he writes about it all the way through 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. All right. He explains how that covenant was set aside. So God sets aside the first covenant of law where cleansing of sin was continual, where seeking forgiveness was continual. He set aside that whole system in verse 10 of Hebrews 10. And by that will, what will? That, the, the Greek word there in verse 10 is the word for covenant or the word for testament. So if you're reading the NIV, it's probably going to say will. Some other translations are going to say covenant. The King James Version, I think, is going to say testament. And the point is this. 
the word will there and by that will or by that covenant or by that testament, meaning the blood of Christ, that testament. Well, what's that testament? That testament is the blood of Christ. By this new testament or this new covenant, this new way of relating to God, we have been made holy. So that tells us right there, there's no such thing as progressive holiness all right it's it's permanent we have been permanently made holy how not progressively over time but we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of jesus christ once for all so remember back when we define what it meant to be sanctified the word sanctified means the one act of God or the one time act of God where he declares a person to be cleansed of all sin because the blood of Jesus purifies from all sin and, the, and God declares a person to be cleansed of all sin the moment they place their faith in Jesus. All right. So here's something to think about. The Greek word for holy in Hebrews 10.10, 10, and by that will or that testament or by the blood of Christ, we have been, it's permanent, it's complete, it's done. We have been made holy. That word holy is the exact same Greek word for holy back in Acts 26.18 when Jesus told Paul, I want you to go share this message in cities all over the Roman Empire that through faith in me, people receive forgiveness. That's part of the eternal redemption that we looked at earlier. And through faith in me, they are made holy. They are sanctified. That's the other part of eternal redemption. So the writer of Hebrews has written an entire book to explain Acts 26, 18, that through faith in Jesus, we're sanctified. And he writes this entire book, I think Paul wrote it, to explain how through faith in Jesus are we sanctified. How did we become holy? And he explains it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses from all sin. So under the old covenant of law, people cannot experience eternal cleansing from sin under the law. They, they cannot experience a continual closeness with God under the law. But under the new covenant of grace, we experience continual closeness with God because we've been completely cleansed from all sins and it can never be disrupted and, it, and we can never be distant from God because the blood of Jesus has purified from all sins one time and we placed our faith in Jesus and now God says, you're sanctified, you're holy, you're clean before me. You're close to me. You're not dirty before me. You're not guilty before me. Look at Hebrews 7, 18 through 19. It says the former regulation, again, that's the law of Moses. That's the Old Testament law that David lived under. The former regulation is set aside. That's the same uh, thing we just read in Hebrews 10, 9. He sets aside the first to establish the second. All right. So Hebrews 7, 18, the former regulation, that's the law that can't, make, that can't make us clean before God, is set aside because it was weak and useless. It didn't have the power to bring 
a clean standing before God. It didn't have the power to bring us close to God. But what the law didn't have the power to do, the cross of Jesus had the power of do, to do. What the blood of bulls and goats and animals couldn't do, the blood of Jesus did do. Look at verse 19, starting at 18 again. The former regulation, that's the law of Moses, is set aside because it is weak and useless. And why is it weak and useless? Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, or the law couldn't cleanse us from sin. The law couldn't forgive sin. It could cover sin, but it couldn't forgive sin. It couldn't cleanse from sin eternally. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope or a better way of relating to God is introduced to the human race. And it's grace. It's the new covenant. It's the blood of Christ. And through this better hope, this new covenant, we now draw near to God. We now come close to God. Why? Because the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all sins. The blood of Jesus has cleared our sin record. And so Satan will send his lie that says, Brad, you're not clean. Your record's not cleared. You can't be close to God until all your sins are confessed. What if I miss one? And people say, well, the Holy Spirit will bring it to your mind. If there's a sin you need to confess, the Holy Spirit will bring it to your mind. What if I miss the Holy Spirit bringing it to my mind? I mean, I've got about a thousand here. Because how many sins would it take for us to be distant from God and dirty before God? One. So if I've missed one sin in my entire life of failure to confess that specific sin, then I'm not close to God and I'm not clean before God, but I think I am and I've been living a lie my whole life. Well, the truth is this, the blood of Christ cleanses from all sin and it clears from all sins. That's the good news of the gospel. And now we're able to draw near to God confidently. Paul taught about being clean before God and close to God in Ephesians. Look in Ephesians 1, 3 through 8. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And how did that happen? He's going to tell us. Verse 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which is freely given us in the one he loves. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. What kind of redemption? Eternal redemption, eternal cleansing of sin and forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. So we're holy before God. We're blameless before God. Blameless means God can't charge us as, as guilty for sin. And holy means that you and I are clean before him because of the blood of Christ. Look at Ephesians 2, 3. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. Why does the blood of Christ bring, bring us near to God? Because it cleanses us of all sin and it makes us holy and righteous and pure before God, clean before God. Ephesians 2.18 for through Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. We go directly into the presence of God. And also the presence of God has come to dwell in us. If, if our hearts were not completely clean, then, then the, the Jesus couldn't live in us. 
That's, that's, that's why our hearts had to be cleansed completely so that the presence of God could indwell us. Our hearts have actually become the most holy place because that's where God lives. He has made our home, his, he has made our hearts his home. And we have direct access to the Father and sin does not disrupt the access. Sin does not create a barrier between us and the Father because the blood of Jesus brought, brings us near to the Father and it cleanses from all sin. Ephesians 3.12 in Jesus, and look at this, in Jesus and through faith in Jesus, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Believers' confidence is lost when we believe the satanic lie that says your sin has made you dirty before God, your sin has created distance between you and God, your, create, your sin has uh, disrupted fellowship between you and God. Your sin has created a barrier between you and God. And this is how I used to think. I, that, that's what I used to think. I, I, was, I was intoxicated with satanic lies. But the truth of the gospel d extinguished all those lies now so that I know that I'm clean before God because of the blood of Christ. I know that my sin record's been cleared because of the blood of Christ, eternally clean and eternally cleared. And therefore, it's produced a freedom in my life and a confidence in my relationship with God that this law-based mentality that I was living with could never produce. And now it's, I have a grace mindset, a blood of Christ mindset that has cleansed me from all sins and has cleared this sin record. So this freedom has now come. And this confidence in my relationship with God has now come, but it's all based in Jesus and what he's done on the cross. Now, there are many more truths of grace that we could talk about over the next several months that would counteract Satan's lies. And so rather than spending the next several months looking at each individual lie, let's just quickly look at some of them as we bring our teaching to an end tonight. I'm going to talk about Satan says, that's his lie, and then I'm going to talk about Jesus says, and that's the truth of the gospel, the power of the gospel of grace. Satan says, God is holding your sins against you. Jesus says, all your sins were held against me. Satan says, God is counting your sins against you. Jesus says, all your sins were counted against me. Satan says, you will have to pay for your sins. Jesus says, I paid for your sins. Satan says, you're not forgiven. Jesus says, you're completely forgiven. Satan says, you're guilty for all your sins. Jesus says, I took the guilt for your sins. Satan says, you're not right with God because of what you did. Jesus says, I made you right with God because of what I did. Satan says, you are condemned for your sins. Jesus says, there's no condemnation for you because I took your condemnation. Satan says, you are under God's wrath because of your sins. Jesus says, you're at peace with God because I took your sins. Satan says, you can lose your salvation. Jesus says, I secured your salvation. Satan says, you can never be close to God. Jesus says, I brought you close to God. Satan says, you have to work to be close to God. Jesus says, I did the work that brings you close to God. Satan says, sin more because you're under grace. Jesus says, sin shall not be your master because you're under grace. Satan says, live in sin because of grace. 
Jesus says, leave sin empowered by grace. Satan says, Jesus left you. Jesus says, I live in you. I love you. I will never leave you. Satan says, your past has ruined your life. Jesus says, my grace will restore your life. Satan says, you have no hope in future. Jesus says, I am your hope in future. Satan says, I've got the whole world in my hands and I'm going to destroy it. Jesus says, I've got the whole world in my hands and I will remake it. So the key to defending ourselves against Satan's lies, his flaming arrows, is to become so familiar with the gospel of grace that when his lies come, we can spot them immediately and we can hold up our shield of faith that trust in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We can trust in what his blood has done for us in cleansing us of all sin, clearing our sin record, bringing us close to God. So let's keep learning about grace. Let's keep growing in grace. And the more we grow in grace and learn about grace, the more we're able to spot these flaming arrows of Satan that are aimed at us and that are against us. All right, you guys, let's talk about anything maybe that came to your mind during our study. Remember, you're muted, so uh, you'll have to unmute yourself. But... um, what, what came to y'all's mind uh, tonight as we studied that? Any, anything specific or any questions you might have? Well, Brad, um, this was a very... Hey, I want to thank you for listening to this teaching today. If you enjoy these teachings, you may also enjoy the resources on my website, gracereach.org, and you may also enjoy my books, which are available on Amazon. I also have a YouTube channel and a Facebook page, and you can find the links to all my resources and the details of this podcast teaching. If you'd like to support my ministry in reaching more and more people with the good news of God's grace and teaching more and more people about His grace, click the Donate button on the Grace Reach website, again, which is gracereach.org. Hey, thank you guys so much for listening to this teaching today. I pray that through these teachings, you are understanding the Bible more fully and you're understanding God's grace more clearly. Have a great day.